Kim. It's over 10 years since we looked at the book of the Revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. It predates the sermons being put up on the internet. One or two have asked specifically that we do look at it. Um, and it would be good for us to do that. This is a great book. Uh, I suggest to you that for many Christians, many Christians adopt a polarised position with this book. They either never open it, saying it's just too confusing, I don't even want to consider it, or they're obsessed with it in the wrong way and um, end up with all these timelines and charts and they know when Christ is going to return and they know to the smallest detail how it's all going to happen because they found it here in this book and uh, there's no other possible way of understanding it other than the way they've understood it. Either extreme, of course, is very unhelpful, but this book is supposed to be studied, it's supposed to be read, it's supposed to be heard, as we discovered in these opening verses as Paul read them to us. But before we even start to look at it, can we just get one thing clear? This book is first and foremost not about uh, beasts and battles. It's not about details of Christ's return. We're going to be looking at that, but that's not first and foremost what it's about. It's not even first and foremost about the future. First and foremost is about Jesus Christ. Of all the books in the Bible, I would suggest to you, this one might be the where, book where Christ is most obviously focused on throughout the book. Uh, I know in the Gospels he is, but very much as the man on earth. It's here in this book that we're presented with the cosmic Christ, like in no other book in Scripture. It's the Christ who reigns, the Christ who fights, the Christ who keeps, the Christ who protects, the Christ who returns, the Christ who defeats, the Christ who destroys, the Christ who is worshipped, the Christ who is adored and glorified and magnified. That's what this book is all about. It's about Christ. And of course, because of that, Satan's great goal and his considerable success within the church is that many people see it as anything other than being about the wonder of Christ who is to be fallen before and adored and worshipped. So we're going to this, this evening and we've got a lot to get through in a short time so we're going to have to motor but we're going to attempt to go through this first chapter and we start here verses 1 to 3 with the author and his authority. The authorised version of course entitles this uh, book uh, The Revelation of John or the Revelation of St. John the Divine and so we've had generations growing up very much viewing this book as having come from John uh, they speak of it as John's Revelation. It is not, categorically it's not. The ESV, of course, uh, has it titled The Revelation to John. Better would be The Revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is God speaking. This has got an introduction like no other book in the Bible. Other books are introduced by the author. You know, Paul writing to so-and-so. Uh, the Gospel of uh, Mark or whatever it might be. But in this book, look how it opens. The Revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. In other words, God the Father has given this book to Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ has given it to the Apostle John, in order that John might pass it on initially to those seven churches and then through the inclusion of Scripture down to each and every Christian living on the face of this planet. My friends, we must see that this is from God. If you've got a Bible in which the words of Jesus are recorded in red, you will discover that in chapter 1 there are bits in red, all of chapter 2 is in red, all of chapter 3 is in red, parts of chapter 22 are in red. This is Christ speaking. This is God saying, this is my presentation of my Christ. Look at it and fall in adoration and worship him. 
the revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave him to show to his servants this speaks with all the authority of God not simply because it's included in the canon of scripture although that would be enough but because it is God himself speaking here to us it's worth just noting when this happens before we get into it John's an old man he's uh, uh, living in a period of intense Christian persecution probably somewhere around 96 AD uh, the emperor um, uh, Domitian is uh, engaged in hostile persecution of the church John because of his testimony because of his open witness for Christ has been exiled he's on the island of Patmos it's a rock it's about 8 miles by 4 miles there's no church on it uh, he's just living there trying to uh, maintain his, his uh, date in Christ he's trying to maintain his spiritual um, sharpness in a, a very difficult very hostile place and it's Sunday it's the Lord's day and he says I was caught up in the spirit although I didn't have a church to worship with that wasn't going to stop me worshipping God on the Lord's day my friend I hope you appreciate the privilege of having a church to worship God in there are Christians around the world who just do not have this privilege whether because they're in prison for their faith or because they don't know of any other Christians in persecuted lands they may have heard the gospel through a radio broadcast into that country they've given their life to Christ and they do not know another Christian to ever meet with and they're having to worship Christ alone in isolation that is not how God intends it to be God's purpose is that we come together to worship him. John can't do that, but he's not going to miss out on it because of that. On the Lord's day, he's there worshipping God. And he says, as I was in the Spirit worshipping God, God comes and gives this vision by Holy Spirit to him. And he gives it for a very specific purpose. Did you see that, verse 3? Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it. He gave it so that it would be read. He gave it so that it would be listened to. He gave it so that it would be heeded. Lots of people have got Bibles in England. Lots of people use them to prop up the end of their bookshelf or, you know, look impressive. The Bible has been given to us to read and to believe and to heed but never more so than this book. This book carries this instruction with it that it's been given blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it. My friends, are we going to do that over these coming weeks? If we're here to read it to listen to it and to put into practice to take to heart what it says then we are promised that God will bless us that's amazing isn't it we're always blessed when we come to scripture all scripture is God breathed scripture tells us and it's profitable for us but here this book actually opens with this extra promise that if we will study this book God will give us a special blessing for doing so now before we go any further let's just explore that a little bit why is God going to bless us for it and how is God going to bless us for it why will God bless us well the answer is given there in verse 3 for the time is near 
Now at that point, immediately, some Christians start grabbing out their timelines and their charts of Christ's return. This is it. We're in the last few years. Christ is coming back and you know all the signs are coming to pass. That isn't what he means here at all. He's sending this out to seven churches in the first century AD. And he's saying the time is near. In other words, this is for this period of time between Christ's ascension and Christ's return. Of course we're closer now than they were then, but it applied equally as much to them that the time is near. This is for our generation. This is for our culture. This is for our situation. Wherever you're at in your life, this is for you. The time is near. This is all about the church under persecution. And that was happening then and it's happening now. We read this morning, we quoted several cases in the last uh, 10 days of persecution in the church around the world. That newspaper, please have a look at it afterwards over coffee. It's a Christian press and it's just full of accounts of Christians suffering for Christ in, in this year already. And it's into that very situation and for that reason that God gives this letter. He says, because the time is near, the persecution rises and because the persecution is rising, you need to know what this is all about. You need to know that Christ is reigning. You need to know how this is going to end. And so he gives us this wonderful prophecy in order that we can be sure and we can be confident and we can be bold. So what about the how? How will God bless us as we read this? Well, primarily in this way, that we will be understanding of, of how we're supposed to view the world. We will be understanding of what God is doing. We will understand how this fits into the context of redemptive history and therefore we'll be equipped to handle it. The tragedy is that so many Christians are afraid to open their mouths when they go out there and they're afraid to live for Christ out there because of what's going to happen as a result of it and God's saying look if you understand it aright then that fear is taken away if you understand it aright you can have confidence to go out there and speak for me and if you understand it aright when bad things happen to you you won't be overwhelmed by them you won't be crushed by them you certainly won't be defeated by them because with that right understanding of them you'll put them into context and you'll worship me through them so this is a very, very important book for us to study. So see, secondly, the Saviour and his salvation. Verses 4 to 8. You can't have a book all about Jesus without it being about a Saviour, can you? Because Jesus is the Saviour. And before John gets into any description of the vision that's given to him, he must first talk about his Saviour and, and his salvation. And the origin of that salvation is in the Father, in God. But not only in God the Father, but in the triune Godhead, Father, Son and Holy Spirit. He talks in verse 7 of the sevenfold Spirit. Now we're going to meet numbers all through the Bible. They seem to take on a life of their own. But seven stands for perfection. Wherever we find seven in the book of Revelation, it's talking about what is perfect. And here it's describing Holy Spirit as the perfect Holy Spirit, the sevenfold Spirit. And straightway we're introduced to the work of the Father and Christ that's so central to this book, isn't it? Look at verse 5. To him who loves us, God loved us in the fact that before ever God started his work of creation, he set his love upon me. I didn't deserve it, I can't repay it, 
I, I can only marvel at it that God set his love upon those he would save and that is just amazing and now as one who's been saved I can look back and I can praise God that he loved me, verse 5 to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood it's not only speaking of the Father but it's very clearly speaking there of Jesus Christ that he loves us as well and that by the shedding of his blood past tense we have been freed my friends you appreciate that tonight if you're a Christian sitting here that Jesus Christ has freed you you are eternally free and eternally loved verse 5 he rose again and in his resurrection is ours he is the, the firstborn from the dead in other words his resurrection is not complete until all those who are in Christ are also resurrected he is the firstborn he is the, 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 the one who goes ahead he is the promise of what's going to follow verse 6 he made us a kingdom and priests to God the Father what a privileged position do you realise if you're a Christian tonight, that in the eyes of the world you might be nothing less than nothing but in God's eyes you're a priest to serve God Verse 6, he now reigns forever and ever. He once was dead, laid in a tomb, cold and dead, risen again, ascended to heaven and now reigns never more to die. My friends, we serve a risen saviour tonight. When we came into this place, we did not come to remember someone who's dead and who's got a tomb somewhere that we can go and visit and say, this is where our leader lies. We came into here to meet him. He is here in this place, the risen, ascended, glorified Christ. And verse 7, he's coming again. That's the gospel in a nutshell in these few verses, isn't it? He is coming again. And you see how it describes it there, verse 7? Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. Well, they're dead now, aren't they? So they've got to come back to life. God will raise up the dead, and every eye will see him. Every knee will bow before him. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Even the ones who put him to death on the cross. He will be vindicated. He will triumph. He will have the glory. And all peoples on the earth will mourn. What a day of terrible tragedy that will be for so many. When finally they're convicted with the truth. And it finally comes home to them that in this lifetime they were wrong. That Christ is alive. He is the King. They should have bowed the knee and worshipped him. My friends, we live in a fallen world that has rejected God, don't we? We've fallen, we live in a world that's rejected God and rejected Christ, his anointed one. A world that has already stands condemned and yet we fight an impossible war seeking to win against God when you cannot beat God. The psalmist says some too that he's in his heavens and he laughs at those that say they can overthrow him. And yet we're in the midst of this battle that still rages. My friends, can you be encouraged in this that we have a saviour, a saviour who is alive, a saviour who reigns, a saviour who is coming back and his salvation is secure and if you're in Christ you are secure for time and eternity so see finally the king 
and his kingship. What's going on in the world today? What's happening to the church? Why are Christians in this land so dissatisfied and so lacking in commitment and zeal? Why are so many Christians confused? Well, the moment you start to look around, that's what happens to us, isn't it? As as soon as we take our eyes off what it should be focused on, Christ and Christ's purpose and God, and we start looking at what others are saying and listen to what they're saying and all the pressures that are around us, of course we end up confused. We need to know that Christ is King. America this week is celebrating a new president, President Trump. Whatever you thought of him, he's now there, or he will be in a few days' time, and he will reign the largest democratic country in the world. He will have massive power, but he's not the king. We've got Theresa May. She probably thinks she's quite important and powerful as well. But she is not the king. Jesus Christ is the king, the king of kings and lord of lords. My friend, you need to know that today. I need to know this. When I go back out there tomorrow into the world, when I go back out under secular authority and talking with people and moving amongst people who don't know Christ, I worship the king And the king acknowledges me before the throne of the Father. Just look how this vision opens. It's so powerful, isn't it? Look at the majesty and authority of the king. So great that verse 17, John falls at his feet as though dead. really troubles me when I hear some Christians talk about Jesus like he's their mate. You know, like Jesus and I like that sort of thing. I'm like, where did you ever get an idea like that? Isaiah gets a vision of the temple of God and he says, Woe unto me, I'm a man of unclean lips. Ezekiel has a vision, he falls flat on his face. John has a vision here and he falls flat on his face as though dead. Peter's in a boat and he suddenly begins to understand who Jesus is and he says, Depart from me, I'm a sinful man. This is awesome that John gets a glimpse in a vision into the throne room of heaven and gets a glimpse of the God-man Christ Jesus and he falls down as though dead before him. Now what makes John react like that? I mean verse 13, what does he see? He sees one like a son of man. He sees a a human being is what it means. He sees someone who is a man. And you think, well why would seeing a man make him fall down as though dead? Well look what this man is like. Yes, he looks like a man. But at the same time he's so different to any other man, isn't he? He's not a ghost, he's not a spirit, he is a real man. But, verse 13, he's wearing a robe down to his feet, he's got a golden sash around his chest. In other words, he's the high priest before God, that's how the high priest dressed. And he's standing there before God as the great high priest, whoever lives to intercede for us. But verse 14, his head and hair are like wool, as white as snow. In other words, he's pure and holy and eternal, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. Have you ever had somebody hold your gaze? Maybe when you're a child and you've done something wrong and your parents asked you and you told a lie to try and get out of it and they sort of just looked at you and said, are you telling me the truth? 
and, and you just saw their eyes sort of burning into you and you just had to lower your eyes before them and no and John looks at Christ and his eyes are like no eyes he's ever seen before they just peer straight into him like flames of fire but not only that his feet are like burnished bronze this is no spectator God who's impotently up in heaven saying oh dear look what a mess the world's getting into I hope it can sort itself out Oh, I hope people will decide to come to me and be saved because I'd really like to save them, but I can't do anything. This is a God who's got his feet uh, clad in armour that he's marching out. He's stamping on his enemies. This is a God who rules with a rod of iron. He's the all-conquering king. And his voice, verse 15, it's like the, the roar of many waters. Have you ever stood in a place, I don't, I've never had the privilege of going to somewhere like the Niagara Falls or somewhere like that, but have you ever stood somewhere where the water roaring over is just so loud you can't, you can't make yourself heard to a person near you? And John says when Christ spoke, it was like that. There was such power, such authority in his words. And he's got a sharp, double-edged sword coming out of his mouth. This is visionary. The further we get into this book, the more visionary language we're going to encounter. He doesn't mean that Jesus has actually got a sword coming out of his mouth. He's saying, no, uh, it, Jesus has got power and authority. And, and the sword speaks of that. And what a face, verse 16, like the sun shining in full strength. John would have understood what that was like. He's there on this bare rock, out in the middle of the, you know, the GNC in the, in the, in the middle of summer, and the, and the sun bakes down. And he says, but when I looked at Jesus, his face was even brighter. My friend, little wonder that John fell before him as though dead. And so we must, for this is our king. My friend, this is what we need to know. This is what we, we need to have solid there in our minds tomorrow when we go back out into the world when you go to work tomorrow when you collect your kids from school when you're trying to witness to your neighbour when you're up to your neck in the mire when you're at hospital listening to the consultant when you're lying dying on your bed in those last few days before you meet Christ this is the image you need to have he is my king and he is my saviour but see how Jesus acts three things and we're supposed to be encouraged by each one of them here's the first one he comforts John see that verse 17 he laid his right hand on me saying fear not when did Jesus do that he did it when John fell prostrate at his feet when John acts as he should before Christ and falls in humility and worship to Christ, then Christ puts his hand on him and says, don't fear. My friend, if we want to know the comfort and the love of Christ like John experiences it here, we need to be in the position that John was in when he received it. We need to be on our knees before Christ. When we're on our knees before Christ, then Christ comes and comforts us. Secondly, he walks among the lampstands. 
And again, we're introduced to this first bit of imagery in this book. And yet this time it's very easy because we're told what the lampstands are. We only have to go down to verse 20 to discover that the lampstands are the churches. And by the fact that they're plural and and it names the seven churches initially that they're being sent to, uh, we know that he's not talking just about the church universal, but he's talking about local bodies of believers. In other words, Jesus holds the true churches in his hand. Oh, sorry, Jesus walks amongst the true churches. We need to know that. I mean, you look around this world and there are some mega churches, aren't there? You know, tens of thousands of people gathering. And, and you know, and you, and you sort of look at that perhaps and listen to the worship and you say, wow, that's awesome, I wish it was like that here. Well, it would be nice, wouldn't it? But my friends, this is the only thing that matters. Jesus is here. Jesus says, where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. You know, we come into this place and we see each other, don't we? Say, oh, good to see you. Oh, it's lovely to see you. See, it's great that, you know, to have you back with us. And that's right. But do we as well recognize that Jesus is here? And then you get some, of course, who go the other way and they actually welcome Jesus. They'll stand up and they'll say, Jesus, we welcome you. What are you talking about? It's his house. Praise Jesus that he welcomes us. That he lets us come into this place and meet with him. But what a privilege. And when we're toying up, tossing the coin or whatever we do on a Sunday as to whether or not I bother to go to church today or whether or not, you know, the weather's a bit bad and, uh, and it's a long way to go, and, uh, you know, I'm going to go and meet with Christ. He is walking in his churches. It comforts John. He walks among the lamp stands and he holds the stars in his hands. Now, although we're told what this is in verse 20, it doesn't help us an awful lot because we're none the wiser when we know what it is. It's because it says it's the angels of the churches and we think, but who are the angels of the churches? That the word translated angels there can be translated in a number of different ways and different versions have chosen different ways to translate it. Probably the most likely meaning is that he holds his true ministers in his hands. That those who is charged with the responsibility of holding the truth in those churches, he holds in his hands. In other words, he safeguards the preaching, he safeguards the teaching, he safeguards the men that he is charged with doing it if they're truly his. And what an important thing that is for us to know. That the church doesn't continue as long as the pastor gets it right. The church continues as long as Jesus Christ is holding him in his hand. And if the pastor gets it right, it's not credit to the pastor, it's credit to Christ who's holding the pastor. My friends, do you feel discouraged as how things are going? either in your life or in the church? Do you look around and say, we're so small, look at us here tonight. Out there is a world that is hostile to Christ. Out there is a world that needs to hear the gospel. How how can we begin to do that? My friends, here's the answers. We have Christ's authority to go out there and do it. He he is the saviour of the world. There is no other. You know, they can follow whatever religion they like, but there is only one saviour at the end of the day, and that is Christ the Lord. 
He's the king. The king who we can know, who loves us, the king who will comfort us, the king that moves amongst us, who walks in these churches, the king who holds his ministers in his hands and the king before whom one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. My friends, what a wonderful introduction to this book, this first chapter is. As, as Jesus just starts to unveil to John what this is going to be all about, it's going to be about him and it's going to be about his eternal reign and it's going to be about how he triumphs and how because we're in him we too are meant to conquer and triumph in every area of life we're going to sing together uh, we're going back a